very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. Today, we're very pleased to welcome the award-winning golf historian and writer, Roger McStravick, to the show to explore the formative days of modern golf and the influence that these early pioneers had both on the growth of the game in Scotland and farther afield. I've always been interested in history. However, through a deepening of my interest in golf architecture, I've also been recently consumed with the history and development of the game of golf. To understand golf now, it is instructive to understand how it was in the past, how it developed, who was responsible for this development, while also pondering why it developed in certain directions and at certain times. Had Leith links in Edinburgh not had money troubles, then conceivably the home of golf could have been in Edinburgh. Had the confluence of Alan Robertson, Hugh Lyon Playfair, and both old and young Tom not happened, then I might be speaking from a completely different script. Today we explore these topics with Roger, and many more. We hope you enjoy our chat. Hi Roger, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. How is all in St Andrews? Yeah, glorious. It's a beautiful day. And it's nice been beautiful for the last couple of days. So yeah, you know, the course is looking fantastic. And the town is beginning to buzz again with people coming back. This is a good time of year. You know, the students are still here and the golfers are beginning to arrive. So yeah, so the town, I, I, I love it when the town's sort of jumping in buzzing and every coffee shop's filled with students studying and you know it's just St Andrews at its best really. We first spoke many years ago when you worked for Firm in St Andrews and I worked with Open Fairways in Belfast so it's great to speak with you again. Since those marketing and PR days you've moved on to be an award-winning golf writer perhaps you might give us an introduction to Roger McStravick from Lurgan County Armagh in Northern Ireland, how you got bitten by the golf bug and more importantly how you started to write about it. Um, so yeah, from Lurgan, Northern Ireland, um, which was a, an amazing place to grow up in the 1970s and 80s, because it was in the midst of all the troubles. But in our golf club, at Lurgan Golf Club, you know, I joined when I was 11, and I basically I spent days and days throughout the summer. My mum would drop me off at four eight o'clock, and I'd be there until six o'clock, and we'd play, you know, fifty four holes a day, and you know, so it was quite idyllic. But the, the club itself was brilliant because as an 11-year-old, you quite quickly get used to, you know, there is, there is no them in us, it's just us. And golf was the religion at the golf course, you know, and the, and the club. And anybody who, who tried to bring anything up that was vaguely, you know, sectarian or... They, they were quickly told off and quickly sent a letter by the secretary, uh, Archie, you know. So um, it was a brilliant, brilliant place to grow up. And I know that sounds bizarre to say when... The clubhouse was blown up a couple of times. A man was shot in the head by a sniper. You know, this is not this is not normal, and I appreciate that. But the club itself was just a wonderful, wonderful place. And there might have been people trying to interfere and trying to divide us, but it was absolutely golf was the religion, you know. And it was a players' club, you know, as well. There were a lot of really, really good players. So it was a lovely place to to grow up. And I got into golf purely by watching the Opens, you know, the Lee Trevino, you know, during the, the sort of 
the harder ones, as I would call them, in terms of the hard ground and the, the brown links and stuff, you know, and I absolutely loved it. And I love Peter Alice as well. He's such a hero of mine. I, there's a photograph of myself one Christmas morning and all my presents I pushed to one side because I got a video of Peter Alice and that was what I was most excited about, you know. So, yeah, so I got really into it and I eventually got my clubs when I was 11. And playing, I got down to to five and six quite young. I was about 16. And then got distracted by various things that 16-year-olds get distracted with, you know. So, as can happen, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. It, it, it's, it's not as rare as you might think. And then how I get into writing, I, I always wrote. You know, I know it sounds daft, but, but at school, the moments w- when I got praise at school was when I was writing. You know, I remember Mr. Flanagan reading one of my poems out. And that's always where I excelled, you know, where I was left to me on devices and just allowed to write, you know. And, and the, every job I, I sort of took, I was always found myself writing, you know, whether it was marketing or whether it was uh, a ghost column for Sam Torrance in the Scotsman or various things, you know. And then I was writing articles for lots of different magazines. But it was the one thing that really resonated with me, you know. And it is to this day, it really does. You know, I, 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 if I have a morning writing, then I'm, I'm a much better dad, really, you know. Problems don't seem so problematic when, <laughs> if you've had have had two hours of just been able to write and really get into it, you know. So yeah, so so that that's basically how I got here and how I got into writing. Uh, apologies, first of all, then obviously for drawing you away from the writing this morning. I know you like to write in the morning, so you're going to just have to talk about it this morning. But <laughs> many thanks for that. I think it's a starting point for our discussion today. I just wanted to take a brief look at the fortunes of Leith Links versus what we now know as the RNA and the old course at St Andrews. From my research, I believe the first 13 rules of golf were formulated in 1744 by the Honourable Company of Edinburgh golfers who were based at Leith Links in Edinburgh on their five-fold golf course. These golfers played annually for a silver club that the City of Edinburgh donated. And that particular version of the Honourable Company was disbanded in 1831. If we counterpoint that with the embers of the St Andrews story, 1754, what is now known as the RNA, was founded. 1764, 22 holes became 18. And in 1834, what is now the RNA received its royal designation from King William IV. So the home of golf and the foremost authority of the game was essentially founded in St Andrews. The centre of the golfing world could conceivably have been Leith and not St Andrews. What says Mr McStraffick? Yeah, a lot of things have gravitated to St Andrews. You know, St Andrews didn't invent the Open. It didn't invent the Amateur Championship. didn't invent, you know, various things, including, you know, ladies golfing, etc. But they naturally gravitated towards St Andrews when the fortunes of the Honourable Company picked and dropped, you know. So things naturally came here. The 22 holes, and the reason why we play 18 holes, was because the original four holes were too short. So the course was very similar in some ways to today based on the back nine. If you think they played the course back to front and they played from 
18th, the 17th, the 17th, the 16th, you know, that would be in their front line. The original closing green and tea box would have been in the garden approximately where Tom Morris's shop is, because they wouldn't have been there. That's all land. So the course evolves. And also just thinking about that, the course itself, that opening hole, because the first hole that we know didn't exist. You know, that's all beach and water and sea. And the fairway was only 65 yards or so wide. So you're driving down, trying to avoid the beach on your right. There's a massive bunker called Halkett's, about 200 yards down the fairway, trying to avoid that. Then going over Miss Wilkin Burn, then going over at the Roadhole Bunker to the 17th Green, which is tricky at the best of times. And you can see how what an incredibly difficult course it was that they played. So the, the evolution of the links, and the links has always been evolving. The whole entire front nine, if Paul Tom created the, pretty much the entire front nine, by like burning away and clearing away lots of wind open up for a race. So it, it's constantly been evolving and constantly been developing. Let's say it, things came to St Andrews and when the fortunes of the Honourable Company waver, then people looked to St Andrews for decisions on you know, so how many holes are on a golf course. Well, St Andrews has 18, purely by accident, purely by that's what fitted onto the land and best. That's why everybody plays 18 holes. You know, so some people did look to Sanders for rules and for their actual course as well, you know, to be a proper course. It evolved and it wasn't, you know, Presswood was only 12 holes, which I think is just a fabulous length of course. We all play 12 hole courses today in the modern era. That would be fantastic. You know, you could run around in an hour, hour and a half, two hours. You know. But yeah, so I think St. Andrews was very fortunate to be in the right place, so to speak, at the right time. So when people started looking to St Andrews, it also coincided with many other aspects that one would probably come on to that, that really helped the growth and expansion of the game. Like golf has been played here. Well, actually, technically, even back even further, just thinking about some of my recent research, but the St Andrews links has been common land since about the year 732. So when they call it the ancient links, there's a pretty good reason to call it the ancient links. So, and, and it's, it was written down in various charters throughout the you know, hundreds and hundreds of years that it was common land, you know, and that's why today, you know, St. Andrews is still, it's a public course. And that's why on Sunday it's closed and you can go walk your dogs over it because it's common land. It is a, just a, it's a, it's just a, a remarkable place. And we have so much to thank for it. But it is also its destiny and its success has been largely to do with fortunes of the time, really. Other people suffered more than they did. Like, even if you look at Willie Park, which I'm sure we'll come on to, his fortunes and Musselboro's fortunes were on, on the decline, whereas old Tom was meeting Prince Leopold, meeting royalty, and, and St Andrews was the hub where everybody wanted to come and visits and live. And there's a direct correlation between the economic success of, of one and, and the other, where one's in decline, one's on the rise. Absolutely. You mentioned the old Tom and we will get on to him, but arguably, if it weren't for a gentleman called Alan Robertson, we might not have an old Tom. 
Over the course of researching today, I found some sage words on a website dedicated to Alan Robertson. And I'd just like to read them out as a starting point for the next part of our chat. Goss heritage is more than just the techniques and craftsmanship. Beyond the physical sport, there's an honourable etiquette that has been passed down through the centuries. One man was responsible for gracefully stitching together the greatest players and the title gentry. Alan Robertson is the father of modern golf. He is the reason we use iron golf clubs. He's the reason we read about Tom Morris. And he's the reason we play the Open Championship. An innovator of the sport, an expert craftsman, and unbeaten throughout his lifetime. Please discuss the aforementioned passage just to give our listeners some context of the importance of Alan Robertson to golf and the reason we're talking today. Yeah, and funny enough, Alan is is the topic of my next book that I'm working on. He was the original champion golfer and he was an exceptional player. His clubs, if you saw them, would have looked like a set of wooden hybrids. They're all, even the short clubs would have looked like hybrid woods. And he was just exceptional golfer. Like the, the, the tournaments he wasn't allowed to play in because he was so good. And especially in the 1830s and 1840s, he was known as the champion golfer. He was the best champion golfer of Scotland and therefore the world. And he was an exceptional player. And I think there's a few myths about him, a few things that have been said over the years which is not exactly true but it's undeniable that he was exceptional so alan robertson was the champion golfer of scotland but it was a title that, that he jealously guarded and wouldn't really accept the challenges of willie park in the 1850s because the thinking was well he worked so hard to get this title why should he give it away to one guy in one match, you know. So he refused to play Willie Park. And Willie Park challenged him in the papers and the press and tried to humiliate him into having a match, but he refused to, refused to have a match. You know? And they played they played matches as foursomes. And there was a famous match where Alan's playing with uh, uh, Mr. Weems and, and Willie Park is playing with a Mr. Hasty, and they're on the 17th. Willie Park and his partner are one up and on the green in two. And Alan Robertson is off the back of the green in three. And there was a betting man there who basically shouted ridiculous odds against Alan Robertson winning. He looked in a bad spot. He was three over the back of the green. And he heard the sort of laughter and ridicule and stuff. And um, he pitched the ball and it went into the hole. And Willie Park and his partner were kind of flustered by this and thrown by it that they three-putted and ended up losing the hole. And then Alan went off first and knocked it down the fairway and Willie Park topped his drive into the water and lost the match, you know. And he was an incredible match player, you know, and he had a a little bit of gamesmanship, you know. He He would... asked his caddy for a club, knowing that the caddy would give him two clubs less, so that they, they would think the hole's much further away than it really is. So yeah, so a great golfer, a real character, 
and he was a bit of a cock of the green, you know, he had this aura of being somebody very important about him. And he didn't have Tom's diplomacy. Tom was fantastic, and we'll talk about Tom later, but Tom was able to, to, to basically be accepted by all classes. Alan didn't really have that skill. When Alan Robertson died, he left in his will this book for his brother David. And the book was called The Robertsons of Struan in Perth. And you think, well, what's really unusual? Why is he leaving one book for his brother, you know? Because Alan Robertson was really well read. He has scrapbooks of Chambers journals and stuff. So he was very, very well read. So he wasn't this like professional who couldn't read. He was, you know, he was a really intelligent guy. So I, I researched the storyline, and it, it basically includes all the heroes of Scottish history. So the reason he had a sort of spring in his step was because he genuinely believed he was directly related to these greatest of Scotland's heroes. And he thinks this blood is through, blowing through his veins, you know, and his family were golf ball makers from the 1500s in St Andrews. So he's thinking he's the king. And that's why he had that aura about him, because he genuinely believed it. He genuinely believed that he was from his great kings. So he was a, he was a colourful guy, and a, a, but he had a remarkable history. I, I'm not going into the detail, but just he is connected to some of the best names in, in, in Scottish history. And he, he came from a a long line of feathery ball makers. And he fell out with Tom in 1848, and we'll make more into that later, but, but the reason why the introduction of the gully ball was such a threat was because he was from a, a family of ball makers who had been making, in essence, the same sort of feathery golf ball for hundreds of years. And then that was all going to end on his reign. So he's saying, oh my God, this, this is me. I'm the one that brings the whole thing down, you know. I'm the one that puts, puts an end to it. This new ball is cheap. It's going to be the end of the traditional ball maker. Centuries of heritage is about to be destroyed. As it turned out, it, it was actually more profitable for them. They could make more balls. They could sell. Even the, they, they were cheaper to, to sell. So they ended up selling more balls, you know. So... It ended up turning out to be a good thing. And then when he broke, he was the first person ever to break 80 on the old course. He shot 79 in 1858. He did it with a gutty ball. So, yeah, I'm sure we'll come into the detail of that story a bit later. But And it was just tragic that he died age 43. You know, could have seen him go on and designing more courses. Tom designed or redesigned over 100 courses. Alan had started to do that sort of work as well. It just, it was so tragic. He basically had a jaundice and over a period of six months, you know, died. But his death left an open question. Who's the new champion golfer of Scotland? And that's why Presswick created an event to find the answer to that question. And that was the open. And that's why you'll hear every year when the trophies handed over, the card chugs handed over, they say the champion golfer of the year is 
and it's the same question that's been asked since 1860. And that's why I absolutely love the Open. Well, it is, it is the pinnacle of, of our sport, uh, it must be said. I mean, much and all as I have a soft spot for the other championships, you know, it's the one you look forward yeah, to Yeah, no, I really do. Just the history of history about it, you know. And then it's come to St Andrews this year, which is just, just hugely exciting. Yeah, you lucky devil. <laughs> I'll sit in the St Andrews club probably and watch most of it, you know. I'm sure you will, and I'll be sick with envy. Anyway, however, listen, we will get on to the first Open in 1960, but maybe it would be remiss of me not to uh, mention, I guess, Alan Robertson, champion golfer. He had a nose for talent, and I believe in around 1836-1837, Alan employs a young teenager by the name of Tom Morris. They were to become great friends. They did have a disagreement, that's been overblown in terms of how much of a disagreement it actually was. They, they still remain great friends, I understand. What can you tell us about the initial months, years, and the relationship that was fostered between Tom Morris, who became old Tom Morris, and Alan Robertson himself? So Alan started, or Tom started in 1839 when he was 18 years old. And thing is, you have to think that at 18 years old, and Tom Morris, who said, had a golf club in my hand from as soon as I could walk. And I was down in the links as soon as he could walk. By the age of 18, he's already a phenomenal golfer. And they form a partnership. And, and also one thing to say, they're only five years apart. And I know the impression is people think, oh, Alan's 45 and Tom's 14. They're not, they're only five years apart. Well, I didn't realise that. I, I try to compare that to my home course in Lurgan, and it's just the guys who are a wee bit older than me, you know. So the master and apprentice line is often used, but they're quite close in age. Tom was probably already one of the best golfers in St Andrews. So Alan, who, as I said, was a clever guy, would have seen, well, actually, this is who I want to play with. I want to play with the best, because Tom... Alan wanted to win, you know, he just... Uh... So they formed a partnership, and I know they've been called all sorts of things like the Invincible, but they won matches and they lost matches, you know. They won, but they won more, a lot more than they ever lost. And they did create a, a level of excitement, which was... You have to imagine games growing in popularity, and their matches are being covered in the press. So as golf is growing, it's the beginning of that really big growth of the game. It's Alan and Tom who are the heroes of St Andrews, where the parks were the heroes of Musselboro and stuff, and the Dunn twins. So yeah, so they, they were a fantastic pairing who I've read about them closing up the shop because a, a challenge match had come through. So they were, for a period of about nine years or so, they were close both in workplace making feathery balls, you know, stitching together three pieces of leather, building them full of feathers. And then out on the links. So they, they were like brothers. I, I like to think of them that way, rather than a sort of master and apprentice. Because by 18 years old, Tom Morris knows how to repair a feathery ball, because he would have had to repair a feathery ball. His father was a handloom weaver. These are not wealthy guys. And if you're playing with a feathery ball and seams start bursting you have to know how to put it back together again you know 
so Tom would have gone into that shop when he started when he was 18 as a fantastic golfer and knowing how to make feathery balls. I, I think it's also important. I think Alan's father died about a year or so before Tom joined. So, and I think those two things are linked as well, you know. But, but as I say, I like to think of them as brothers and, and that friendship and kinship would see them through the, the ups and downs that they had. During the 1840s, and you touched upon the expense of the feathery ball and the time it took to, to make one. I think they used to make three or four a day, something like that, uh, as, as time, would, time would allow. During the 1840s, obviously, the age of empire, and I believe uh, a certain tree from Malaysia was found, the sap of that s- s- uh, same tree was essentially used for the Gutta Percha golf ball. How important was the introduction of the Gutta Percha to the further development of the game? Um, I think it helped. It helped that as the game is growing, they find a substitute which is easier to produce and cheaper to produce. And I think that really helped open up the game more than it, more than it had done previously. There's lots of things bubbling at the same time. The game is growing. St Andrews is going through a, a massive revolution, you know, because Sir Hugh Lamb Playfair has come back from the East India Company and seen St Andrews in complete decay and, and said, well, actually, this town could be the metropolis of golf. And people must have thought he had lost his mind because the town had been decaying for like 300 years and there was dung on the streets and there wasn't actually streets, there was just dirt paths, you know, where we think of, of North Street and South Street and stuff. But he had this vision of this transformed St. Andrews. And he uh, completely, completely either did through his own money or he got people to do it themselves. And he instilled pride in people down in the Fisher Folks area, down at the end of North Street near the cathedral, which was effectively slums, he got them to, this is your area, you know, and get them to redevelop that. So the whole of St Andrews was completely redeveloped and so much money went into it. And the links as well, they were evolving and he was doing lots of things, you know, like the whole land reclamation thing happened on his watch. He was, you know, so they took, as the town's evolving, there's lots of building work trying to make this a, a place where middle classes could come and stay and visit. All the foundations and the rubbish that had been dumped on the town was taken and dumped on the beach and then leveled off. And then that would be our first hole. And that's why the first is like a billiard table. It's all reclaimed land from the beach. So the, the evolution of the gutty ball coming with this, uh, the evolution of St Andrews, the growth of the game becoming more affordable, plus the trains as well. The train lines opened up St. Andrews massively. So you see how this is not just one thing, it's this whole series of things that everything was moving in the right direction for St. Andrews. And it just made the game cheaper and more affordable and when more and more people wanted to play and more and more people could actually get to the links thanks to train service and stuff. So, so it, was, it was timely. So the problem that I mentioned earlier was that the gutta percha ball flew in the face of the traditionalists. Alan, uh, with his love of heritage and his family history, and suddenly this was being wiped out. 
So, and he would, he would find, in the early days, he would find balls and, and keep barrel loads of them and then burn them. You know, that's how irrational he was about it. Wow. Yeah, he really thought this was the end of the Robertsons. And even his scrapbook on, on the left hand, um, inside left of the cover, you know, there's the insignia of the Robertsons, you know, the three wolves and stuff. And so, so you, you've got to see it in, in those sort of eyes that it was hugely intimidating and frightening for someone who's thinking, you, you can imagine the whole heritage of your family is about to be taken away and it's going to be on your watch. So we would have felt a lot of pressure. And so Tom was out playing on the course and I was with Captain Brock and Tom ran out of golf balls and the, the person he was playing with said, well, here, borrow one of these high-tech gutty balls, you know, because <laughs> it was smooth as well, because it in fact, it was a billiard. I don't know one recently, and it is like a billiard ball. And Tom played well with the gutty ball. And it's coming off the 18th green, and Alan came out to greet them, and who's won the money today, and, you know, all that sort of banter. And he was told that Tom had been playing with the gutty ball and they went into the shop afterwards and had a raging row and decided to part ways as you know working together so that's when tom set up his first shop at 15 the lengths in a little, little tiny white building you know it's, it's a effectively a pink shed really and that was tom's first shop but the important thing is that and it does come back to the, how close they were. The, t- the golf team never broke up. The golf team stayed together. They fell apart as employer, you know, an employee. And it was probably a good thing for Tom because Tom wanted the gutty ball and he wanted, you know, Tom was always, and we may come on to this later, but Tom was very much about the future of the game and involvement and more people playing in the game and cheaper forms of the game and making it accessible to everyone. You know, that that's the spirit of St. Andrews is that golf was free. You know, the links was free. They certainly didn't pay to go play on this common land. So, yeah, so they, they stayed together. As, and Alan would visit Breswick and vice versa. There's photographs of Tom with Alan Robertson on the links in the 1850s when he's gone away to Preswick. So they, they, they stayed friends, you know, they, they fell out over the goody ball, but it was absolutely a storm in a teacup. And also, it was economically prudent that the golf team, the best golf team in the world, didn't fall apart when they were making good money. And by good money, it could be 10%, 10% of the pot. So, for example, 1848, they played the Dunn Twins. 48, 49, and the pot was 400 pounds. And they won the match. We're playing against the Parks, uh, or the Dun Twins, sorry. They would have got 10% of that. So you think, okay, they would have got 40 pounds or 20 pounds each. But a man's annual salary as a greenkeeper was five pounds, or there are thereabouts. You know? So this is like for a year's salary in one map in one day. So that's why they stayed together. You know? But also, I think they, they're. They liked each other's company, you know. If you think yourself back to those partnerships, uh, yourself where you've played with a friend and match play and you've done well, you know, if you're close to the person, 
you can almost read their mind, you know, and, and it's so important in golf. And I think that's what they did. They were very, very close and they were like brothers. You had the odd squabble, but the important thing was that they stayed together and played together. And Tom would obviously move on to become head professional and keeper of the greens at Presswick for a time. Obviously, while there, he developed some green keeping approaches that we still use today. Also, if I'm correct, I might not be correct. Did, did young Tom was young Tom, young Tom born in St Andrews or was he born in Presswick? I know he went to school in Air Academy when he was in Presswick. Yeah, no, born in St Andrews, but at the age of one, they moved to. to okay. So, so yeah, so all, all Tom's either open wins or education, etc., happened in Presswick. Needless to say, and there's probably a podcast in in Old Tom at Presswick by itself. We can fast forward, and apologies for doing this, but fast forward through his days at Prestwick. Obviously, as you mentioned earlier on, Alan died quite young. I think it was 1859 at the age of 43. His death leads to the creation of what we, what we now know as the Open Championship and the crowning of the Champion Golfer of the Year with the Open Belt. You might tell us a little bit about how the first running of uh, the Open Championship came to be. Uh, which I believe was at Prestwick in 1860. Obviously, Tom Morris, uh, old Tom, is the the pro and the keeper of the greens at Prestwick. Must have been a, a lot of pressure on him to try and win the belt. Unfortunately, Willie Park wins that. And what can you tell us about that, Roger? So yeah, so the Open was created to answer that question about who's the new champion golfer. It was good for Prestwick as it was publicity for their their relatively young course. Uh, James Ogilvy Furley and Lord Earl of Eglinton, sorry, created the effectively created the event. So the pressure on Tom was was twofold, really. So the first of all was this is the links that he had designed. There was a course there, but a short course, and then he put the, you know this this new links over, and the opening hole was 578 yards, which was just incredible. <laughs> you think the first, you know, if the professionals were hitting at 200 yards, so your average player wouldn't have been hit anywhere near that. So the first one must have seemed like an absolute monster. But that's why I, I said that Tom Morris has got an eye for the future throughout his whole life. So, yeah, so it was, uh, so, so first of all, when they had the Open, the pressure on Tom was great. So the pressure was, it's the course he designed, you know. So if anybody should know all the tricks and intricacies and all the, where's the best place to put it, and et cetera, it's Tom, you know. And he's already the best, one of the best players, if not the best player at the time. So, so there's that pressure. But also, it's Alan's title. Alan had been so jealously protecting this title for for a number of years, and he would have felt, oh my God, I have to win this for Alan as well, you know. He would have felt that it was it was Alan's title, you know, that that, that's, that keeps resonating with me, you know, it's Alan's title. And so he would have felt a lot of pressure for that. So, um, to lose it, to lose it. And, and he also, he, he looked, you know, he, at one stage he was close to winning it, and then the closing holes get into trouble, etc. And then Willie Park wins. But that would have devastated him, you know. It, that would have been, you know, with the members of the club, and it just would have been really awkward for Tom. And and by God, does he make up for it? You know, 
if he wins in 61 and wins in 62. And when he wins in 62, he wins by 13 shots. And that is still today. That's the largest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is. But it's still today the largest margin of victory. So if you look down the, the stats, it'll say Tom Morris, largest margin of victory, Tom Morris, oldest winner of the Open, Tom Morris. He was 46 when he won it in 67. Um, he's the only father ever to come uh, second to his son. You know, just, um, he just was a, a remarkable man, you know. And, and um, but, but I absolutely, I think that loss in 1860, and it was, does feel like the loss would mean a very bitter pill for him to, to swallow. It would have made him very angry, you know. <laughs> and there's there's nothing worse than an angry golfer. You, know, you see a golfer on the tee after a three putt. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I believe he returns to St Andrews, obviously, to as keeper of the greens and, and professional in 1864, which would obviously then lead to a young whippersnapper called Young Tom Morris, who was a Mozart-type character in terms of being so good, so young. What can you tell us about, first of all, old Tom's return to St. Andrews and then maybe the rise of his young son, Tom? So old Tom's coming back to St. Andrews uh, as the absolute hero. You know, he wins the Open in 1864, so he is actually the reigning Open champion that year. You know, So, um, so he comes back an absolute hero. Um, and and then starts to work on the green, starts to work on the caddies. And in 1869, he around about then he created the 18th green, which just to, just a slide aside when they were building that green, the the workmen found a cholera pit, and being a superstitious bunch, because only 120 years previously they'd been throwing witches off the cliffs of the scores to find out if they were witches. Um, so there are just bunch, you know. Um, I, so they're down tools when they saw this pit of bones, and um, and then Tom basically said, you know, unless you finish this green, uh, you won't be getting paid. So they picked up their tools, got over their superstitions quite quickly, <laughs> and finished the 18th green. You know, so the, the 18th green used to be a tiny little green uh, in a sort of hollow, and and became this, which is probably 40 or 50 yards further back than it currently is. Yeah. No, no, no. Same place. Same, Same place. Oh, I beg your pardon. Okay. Yeah, no, no. It, there's been lots written saying that, that the green was up on near the Martyrs uh, Monument, but that's not true. The, the RNA minutes since uh, 1764 are really very clear that the, and this was the 22 holes going to 18, but it's, it says that the opening four holes, as they're currently set out, meaning that the end hole is still the end hole, you know, so it's, the end hole is not somewhere else. It's exactly the same place. So um, it was never up near the Martyr's Mound, you know. Um, I, I think there's some confusion because it was it used to be called Hole of the Hill, um, and people thought, oh, it must mean the green was up the hill. But there used to be a massive mound there as well, and that's why Ellen Robertson's house is called Sandy Hill. And that big, massive mine was taken away during the first revolution. Yeah, no, and the 18th Green was the one thing Tom said he was most proud of. And it is a brilliant green because if you're playing 
you think it's a billiard table, you, you know, you're walking up. But if you stand on the steps of the RNA, it's a massively sloping green. You know, so the optical illusion is is fantastic. And it slopes right to left as the player plays it from the fairway, yeah? Yeah. But it, it looks as if it won't move much. But if you what if you stand on the steps in the RNA and you see that slant, you know, you you'll allow a lot more than you because normally you think, oh, it's just a flat green, so just hit straight at the flag, you know. But it's it's not as massively sloping green. So the colour gets still there and it's it's the where the green slopes to the back right hand corner, you know, it's it slopes um up there, that's where the colour delightful. So he was most proud of that and it's a lasting monument to him. What can you tell us about his young whippersnapper of a son? Tommy was a maverick, you know. By the age of 13, he's already beating Open champions. And then, you know, wins the Open three times as a teenager. And then there's no Open in 1871 because there's no trophy, because you win it three times in a row, you get to keep the champion's belt. And then they create the claret jug, but they don't have it ready for 1872. So Tommy gets a medal in 1872. But his name is the first name that goes on at the next year when Tom Kidd wins it in St Andrews. So, um, yeah, just an exceptional, unique talent. And again, his set of clubs, and remember, there's no bag. It's just it's a clubs that are held under the arm. They're all woods, you know. There is a sort of rut iron, but the majority of the sets in those days, and you know, in those early opens, were were a set of hybrids. So if anybody gives you grief about you're using a hybrid, a hybrid six or five or something like that, well, you you know, you you got the moral authority to say I'm following the footsteps of old Tom Morris, you know. Just tell him to piss off. <laughs> <laughs> just going back to that rut iron thing, um, just for those listeners that perhaps don't know. Am I correct in saying that that club, obviously it's a metal club, which is essentially designed for getting a good approach of golf ball out of a cart track? Yeah, absolutely. So it is deliberately small to fit into the cart track. So, you know, it's it's about the same size as a ball, you know, if you've seen one. So, yeah, so, and it's, it's very heavy as well. Uh, but, yeah, you know, and, and I've read lots of things about, you know, Tommy could get backspin and, you know, I, I, I've i never read, I haven't, you know, and, and I read a lot of 19th century paper reports and stuff, and I've never read that, that somebody said, you know, he could, spin the ball back. I don't even know what was the thing, but but it would but obviously makes, you know, good movie scenes and stuff like that, you know. But he was exceptional. There's just there's no doubt about it, you know, to win the open three times as a teenager. And then so he gets the belt out right and then wins it once more until his uh, you know untimely death, you know, it's just tragic really. I guess just something to say, if people are more interested in young Tom Morris, uh, Stephen Proctor has a great book called Monarch of the Green, which is well worth a read. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know. and, and there's also been a lot of um, myths about what happened on that day his wife died. And, and so the, the truth is, 
poem, um, Tell Me We're Playing a Match at North Berwick against the Parks. Um, the Morris has won the day. And as they're coming off the green, the 18th green, they were handed a, a telegram and it said for Tommy to get home very soon because his wife's having difficulty in labour. So they eventually arranged a boat rather than going through the train and stuff like that, just a boat straight across. As the boat was pulling out, just as it was pulling out, a second telegram arrived and it said his wife had died. The people at the shore could have called him back and they decided not to call him back. So Tommy travels over the water, not knowing what's happening, what's going on. And he ran down North Street and Reverend Boyd was at the door. And it's one Albany place. It's still there today. If you can visit St. Andrews, you'll see the house. And Reverend Boyd said to him on the door, I'm so sorry for your loss. And he said, it's not true, it's not true. And he sprinted upstairs and his, his wife was dead and child stillborn. So it's just an absolute tragedy, really. The next couple of months, Tommy was a shadow of himself and he was broken. I've heard he turned to drink, but again, I don't know if that was romantic license. But he plays the odd match, he plays a, and then he plays a match against Arthur and Woolsworth. But this is a good four weeks prior to Christmas Eve. And now he's moved out of his marital home. He's moved now moved back into his family home with Tom and with his mum and dad, with Tom and Nancy. And on Christmas Eve, he says goodnight to them and goes to bed. And he doesn't surface in the morning, so Tom goes in and Tommy's there dead in his sleep, um, or died in his sleep. He had a burst aneurysm in a lung and actually bled to death, but what would have looked as peaceful as can be. Um, so he yeah, had just, you know, and the shock of that, of his death was, if you imagine Tiger Woods, after he had won like six or seven or eight majors suddenly, dying, you know, that, that was the, the shock of it all, you know. And so they created a, a, a statue for a number of clubs and societies came together and paid for a statue for Tommy. And there's a photograph of Tom and Tommy together and used that photograph as the basis of the of the statue. So And Mrs. Walker, who is old Tom's great-great-granddaughter and still lives in the house there beside the 18th Green, you know, keeps that statue as fresh as can be. It looks fantastic. So, um, I believe the size of it just dwarfs everything else in the in the graveyard. It, it is it, it is wonderful and very 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 poignant. And the sad thing about Tommy is is what what else could he have done? He was already touring with DB Strath. He's around touring around England as a superstar golfer and being paid lots of money, you know, for appearance money, you know. He, you know, he's completely turning that idea of professionals on their head, you know, because uh, professionals until his era uh, were, you know, the working class, whereas his education in Presswood was certainly not working class and his friends were, were not working class boys. So, so that's, that's why 
he if 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 someone said said to him, uh, "Yeah, come and play again, and we'll do some betting on your match," and he would he would like, "No, you pay me to play." So so he got money for his appearance money. Then um, I was reading recently, and there was a, a, a self photograph of his locker that hadn't it was opened in eighteen ninety nine. 24 years or so after he died, and it hadn't been opened. And in it was the coat he wore when he played golf and his clubs in this locker. And again, it's all a set of woods. Just uh, so poignant that it hadn't even been touched for 24 years. So yeah, so he, he was just a, a maverick guy, exceptional. And I think the, the time was truly heartbroken when he passed. I've heard you speak about uh, the combined record of Old and Young Tom. It's probably useful just to let listeners know what the specific of these feats was. It's really quite astonishing. Yeah. So Tom's records were, were literally, Tom Morris was the oldest. He was large and smart in victory. And the father had come second. His son is the youngest winner of the Open Championship. You know, winning three times as a teenager. And he won the belt outright. And then won it for the fourth time in 1872. And so between them, they have eight opens. They are um, truly exceptional. The dynamic, though, between St Andrews and Musselburgh, competitiveness, you know, I think they shared the 20, first 20 odd opens, maybe even 24 opens or so, wow. were either from Musselburgh or they were from St Andrews. You know? they, they were the capital to golf. And then when Musselburgh's fortunes waned, just as St Andrews is rising and rising, then the focus comes to St Andrews, you know. But as a golfing family, they, they, were, they were just exceptional, you know. And that, that's why, you know, you think of Tom Morris, and he touches every element of golf. And that's why they called him the grand old man of golf. You know, so he was a caddy as, as a young boy. You know, so the caddy saw him as one of their own. You know, so when he comes back to St Andrews, he tries to instill standards that all the caddies must adhere to to get away from, you know, this sort of caddy with no shoes and this sort of thing, you know. You know, the urchin caddy, you know, so and instill within, uh, you know, they were in proper clothes, etc., and they've been properly bad. Um, so he's a caddy, he's a player, and um, is the best player in the world. And then he goes on to design you know, over 100 courses are redesigned as well. So he sets up template where professionals in their twilight years design courses, you know, that Tom Morris. You know, he just, he truly was an exceptional human being. And as you, you mentioned before, lots of the things that he did and invented are, are still in use today. Top dressing, that's Tom Morris. And it happened by accident when he spilled sand in Presswick and then came back a day or two later and he found the grass was thriving. So he went nuts and poured it all over the course and it was <laughs> Turned the turned the golf course into a beach. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but it, obviously the grass loved it. So yeah, so yeah, just an amazing family. And then you know you should have Mungo Park on your show to talk about about Willie Park because I think poor Willie has been maligned over the years. But I, I think there's a there, the true story is still to come out. Mungo's working on a book, so hopefully that will come out. Uh, Tom Morrison and him played together often 
as partners, even so much as it was Willie and Tom versus such and such. But even what Willie said, he prefers playing against Tom more than with him. So, <laughs> so you can see that dynamic when I say Alan Robertson and, and Tom Morris were like brothers and could read each other's minds. That's a good proportions partnership. It's, you know, um, Tom and Willie Park was akin to Putin Tiger with Phil Mickelson. It didn't work out fantastic. No, no. Look, in advance of another question pertaining to the growth of the game around this time, I thought it might be instructive to look at a number of facts and figures as it pertains to the expanding nature of the game of golf in Scotland, England, Ireland. And particularly, it's interesting you mentioned the parks there, uh, in addition to Old Tom and the influence that they had it, 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 throughout Scotland, England and, and Ireland. So if we just look at 1857, I believe there was 17 golf clubs in Scotland. By 1888, we'd 73. So obviously the game expanded into England and Ireland to the latter part of the 1860s. Just look at, at England for a snapshot of there. Old Tom was involved in, the, in the, the development of Royal North Devon. His brother George at Royal Liverpool, 1869. Obviously Royal Liverpool would go on to inaugurate the amateur championships in 1885. Two notable members there would be John Ball and Harold Tilton, who uh, were the first English champion golfers of the year, both being members of Royal Liverpool. In, in an Irish context, and again, there's probably a, there is a podcast in this in of itself, but obviously the military and Scottish business people brought the game to Ireland in the 1850s. We're looking at the Curragh Camp, which was a Crimean War training camp, Commonage land beside that, and the uh, Scottish officers looked out their window going, that's an inland links, let's go and build a golf course. Uh, Le Hinch obviously has a, a connection with the Black Watch Regiment uh, in founding in 1892. Old Tom obviously was was involved there in terms of turning the golf course into 18 holes, I believe, in 1894. And then the Scottish business people and merchants, obviously responsible for the Belfast Golf Club, which would become the Royal Belfast Golf, golf Club in 1885. Dublin Golf Club, which was set up in the Phoenix Park by a uh, Scottish banker called John Lumsden, my own home course, in 1885. Royal designation in 1891. The County Club in Port Rush in 1888, becoming Royal Port Rush somewhere between 1892 and 1895. The links at Newcastle County Down, 1889, Royal designation 1908. Old Tom was involved there in 1889. And Rossa Penna, uh, which Old Tom designed on behalf of Lord Le Leitrim, the Old Tom Morris Golf Course, some of which is holes are still, still up there. And Mungo Park, in fact, was involved in uh, laying out Port Marnock's first golf club in uh, 1894. Mungo, of course, was the 1874 Open champion. John Jemison was the landlord from the Scottish stock of Jemison Distillery fame. I think it's pretty clear that without the influence of Alan Robertson, old and young Tom, and the men of St Andrews, that, that the game of golf as we know it may not be as worldly developed or popular as it is, as it is today. Do you agree with my assertion? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. But it's the same people spreading the game. So it's, you know, the Curra, my sister's a member of the Curra. You know, that was Earl Eglinton, Earl of Eglinton, who was associated with the creation of that course. So, yeah, so wherever there's money, there's golf courses opening up all over the place, you know. The fundamental difference between what we had in St Andrews was that St Andrews golf was free. Uh, you know, the links was free, it was open lab. And even today, you know, my kids get golf history lessons in their school classes, you know. Brilliant. Um, they get um, 
uh, golf lessons with Salja, you know, um, that's available for, for, you know, any kid in St. Andrews, you know, and, and the whole, you know, on Sundays, me and the kids just go down to the driving range and, and, and hit balls and the backdrop is the RNA building. So it's absolutely everywhere. In, it is literally a home of golf where everything gravitates, rotates around golf, you know. But, and, and lots of the things that those professionals, early professionals did, you know, whether it's Tommy touring around courses and spreading the word that way, or old Tom and Alan Robertson's matches going into the press, or the fantastic rivalry between Alan Robertson, or not Alan Robertson, Willie Park and Tom Morris. They are spreading the game constantly. And then Tom's doing that in a physical way by actually, you know, designing these courses. But the difference is in St. Andrews, it was free, whereas in lots of the places where the new courses went, it was on sort of landed gentry estates. So therefore, there was an elite attitude about golf, which doesn't exist here in St. Andrews. There's absolutely, you say you play golf, it's like, yes, or what? Uh, whereas growing up in the Lurgan, it, it was like you played golf. It, it thought that, you know, there was this impression that you thought that you, you were elite or something, which was crazy. Like, I remember we, we won golf tournaments, school golf tournaments. And then we had this principal, Sister St. Anne, who was, who would frighten the devil. You know what I mean? She, she'd be just like, <laughs> <laughs> he would purse you in front and go, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Um, and uh, yeah, she liked the sister from Derry Girls a little bit like that. Oh, on it, but yeah, but yeah, but crueler. <laughs> what a witch is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, completely. You know, Jesus has left the building. You know, it was just <laughs> so we won a golf tournament. So the next day, she would want to present it to us in front of the whole school. It was traumatic, honestly. It was just like it was booze, you know. So when the Gaelic team and I played Gaelic as well, I played for our man a lot, you know. And, uh, um, and the Gaelic team got up. It was like the heroes had come home from war, you know. But the golf team got up. It was like, <laughs> boo, you know. It was just uh, so. The, and there was an impression that the, these were the rich boys, you know, which is that's very much like the the whole idea of garrison games. You know, your rugby, your cricket, your golf, whatever else. And and look, it, it, you're absolutely right. That is where it's, I guess, where it started in in an Irish context. You know, the whole island, and and slowly but surely, obviously that. That has changed somewhat, but I guess the echo chamber that is golf, we tend to talk to ourselves rather than actually talking to the community in terms of, and and, and being a little bit less close-minded, shall we say? Yeah, well, I, I remember I went I, I went to Sister St. Anne and suggested that we play rugby and hockey in the school. And she looked at me like I was Linda Blair and the Exorcist. <laughs> the power of Christ compelled you, you know. It's just the most hideous thing I could have possibly gonna have a path in, in the holy water. <laughs> <laughs> Blasphemy. <laughs> Blasphemer, sorry. <laughs> and and she, she was she said, No, we're a traditional Irish school and we only play Irish sports and, you know, and she was as anti English as, as they could be. And as I said, Jesus had left this this lady a long time ago. <laughs> but but that 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 elitism, it, it, it it's not in St Andrews, honestly. You know, 
and, and obviously today golf cheaper and it's, it's not seen so much as an elite sport you know but but um but when it first moved it's that's where the impression comes from you know because it's certainly not you know the spirit of st andrews is it's just a game you know and everybody should yeah. play from the kids to ladies to you know you know, while doing some further research, and again, it's kind of slightly off topic, but it does speak to old Tom's specific sphere of influence and, 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 and what cascaded from St. Andrews. And I know the golfing world was smaller back then, but I was sort of mind officially blown in relation to this. And I did know some of it, but C.B. McDonald, who was well known as the creator of the template holes and the ideal holes, and obviously created the first 18 hole golf course in the USA, Chicago, was a companion of young Tom. I think he got his first set of clubs from old Tom and was, was taught the game essentially by the Morrison. 1892, old Tom expanded Royal Dornock's golf course. A young Donald Ross was a member of Dornock at the time. Obviously he went on to apprentice with old Tom at St. Andrews and moved to the USA in 1899. Sure, he only designed 400 odd golf courses in the States. I'm sure no one's ever heard of him. 1896, Albert Warren, T Warren Tillinghast visited St. Andrews for a while where he became very friendly with old Tom. He was a very prolific designer in the States. Also with, with Opus, Opus designs, including Bethpage Black, Balthastral, and Wingfoot, amongst others. Old Tom was also very friendly with a guy called Douglas Rolland, who I believe came from Ely. Went on to mentor one Harry Shopton Colt, firstly at Malvern in Gloucestershire, and then obviously co-designed Rywood Colt. Colt is often referred to as the father of modern golf course architecture, so maybe I'm easily impressed, but we have a saying here in Ireland, as you well know, coined from a very popular sitcom from the 1990s, and I think this sums up old Tom Morrison, everything we've spoken about thus far. That's mad, Ted. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I just um, think of the people who came and spent time with Tom, and then went back to America and created these hundreds and thousands of links and courses. You know, it's just, just, it's just astounding. You know, and I say that's why he was known and revered in, in his lifetime. You know, this is something people have done retrospectively in his lifetime as the grand old man of golf. You know, because he knew almost every inch of golf, and he he touched every inch of golf and tried to improve everything. You know, and um, like imagine if, if if you took the old course and said, well, actually, I'm going to just create nine new holes. You know, the, the, the world would be up in arms, you know. And uh, um, But effectively, that's what he created. You know, the, the first hole, I think it was around 1872, he just put a new green and, and just over the burn, you know. Um, until that point, they were still playing to the 17th. Uh, I've seen it written that the, seventh, the first green was supposed to be a new green or the 17th, so that it played straight, you know. But I, I haven't, I, I, I can't verify that, but it would make sense, you know. Um, but, you know, but, but he creates that first green, creates a new first hole, and then just opens up the whole front nine, that we know it, and changes the direction of play, you know, builds a new 18th green, you know. That's St. Andrews. It's always, always evolving. You know, if you see pictures of the 17th, the Rotol Bunker, pictures of it, and it's, it's waist high. You know, it, you know, you could get out with a putter almost, you know. So it's just St. Andrews and, and every, everything, nothing changes, but everything evolves. One makes sense. Absolutely. Very sadly, most everybody in the Morris family predeceased old Tom. Uh, he passed away in 1908. 
Um, I'm just interested to understand how keenly his loss was felt, was felt around the RNA clubhouse and indeed further afield. Yeah, devastating. It really was. Um, and there's been, again, there's lots of myths about how he died. And it, it was just let me just to explain exactly what happened. Um, so Tom was in the new golf club and he was having a cup of tea, you know, and the minutes of the new club are fantastic. So they, they detail this, you know. Uh, so he wasn't drinking, you know, and he's a church elder and it was a church day as well. And there was two doors and one door was to the bathroom and one door was down to the cellar. Now, if you know pub cellars, the steps to them are really, really, you know, steep. It's probably because they can get up with a barrel and stuff. But, um, uh, and we, I did a bit of filming recently and got to go into this actual area. And the thing is, if, if you took one step and missed the step, there's nothing to stop you from falling down the stairs and bang your head either off the flagstones at the bottom, because it's all still there, exactly the same, or, or the wall, the old wall. Because literally, at the bottom of the steps, there is, you know, one flagstone. So at best, you know, two feet at very most. You know, so you've come down, you can't grab onto anything, and you're just tumbling and rolling, and then, and then bang, he would have cracked it. And he cracked his skull. Um, un- and he was unconscious and they took him up to uh, I think it was Gibson Hospital and he never regained consciousness and, and that was what, you know he died a few hours later but so he was never drinking or anything like that there was nothing I know it's more dramatic and stuff to say but he wasn't he was having a cup of tea and took the wrong door just a, a simple accident but he had a fantastic life you know he really did to live to you know 87 years in the 19th century, you know, would almost make you like 132, you know, uh, today, you know, he just, uh, it's just a remarkable life. You know, he outlived all his children, designed courses, had the best images, you know, honestly, I, I don't think, you know, he's up in heaven looking down on his life. I, I think he didn't feel nothing but, well, that was fun. Chalk that down. And, and, and you've been, you've been living that story, I guess, for, 20 odd years um, and obviously living in St Andrews as well it gives you an opportunity to just soak it all in a little bit about your writing now if you don't mind you've won the USGA Herbert Warren Wind Book Award in 2015 and indeed in 2020 for your books entitled St Andrews in the Footsteps of Old Tom Morris and St Andrews the Road War Papers presumably been dealing with the footsteps of old Tom Morris for the last uh, the last wee while. The Road War Papers sounds like a fascinating delve into the history of the old grey tune. I believe it includes rabbit warrens, stones, a fella called James Cheap. Uh, I'm sure it's a, a fascinating read. You might just tell us what is... Um, you know, a pricey of, of of what it's all about, and 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 what you some of what you've you've found that was, I guess, heretofore unknown. This book was an absolute joy to research, and honestly, I um, I, I, I love spending time at the University uh, Special Collections Department, and it was thanks to them uh, that I even had the material. I I was researching 
the for footsteps the the first one that won the, the, the USGA award and and um, Katrina came over and said oh we've got this box of of papers called St Andrew's Links, but we don't know what it is. Would you like to look at it anyway? Said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I could have right place, right time. Katrina's the head of uh, collections, yeah. Yeah, she's one of the team there. She's one of the team. And in it was a lot of statements, but it was statements by Tom Morris speaking about his oldest memory of, of the links, and um, and then what he thought about some something to do with the road. At that point, I had no idea what it was. And there was Jamie Anderson and John White Melville and all these great names of St Andrews. And um, and I was that's amazing because there's a treasure trove of information because all of these people are talking about their earliest memories. And people, so people are remembering when first house was made, you know, for example, on the east of the wind, I think he's called it, and it was a guy called George Clark. But that Clark became Clark's wine, which eventually became Granny Clark's wine. You know, these are the people who took the rubbish. When I talked earlier about taking the rubbish from the town and, and dumping it on the beach and creating the first hole, well, this is the man who took the rubbish from the town, you know. And uh, and it was just a treasure trove of information. So with the book, I kind of didn't want to get in the way. I, I wanted to, the, the statements to people to talk themselves. This is like a, a sort of oral history of St Andrews. And all these great little nuggets and, and, and nuances and, you know, things we didn't know before. And I, I just, um, again, I, I love the research, you know. So so there's there's sections from all the sort of heroes, who, Tom Morris and, you know, that sort of, uh, the professional golfers and stuff. But there are other ones like from Carters and, you know, people in town who happen to be there during something really amazing happening on the links, you know, or, you know, that whole landscape around the 18th green and how that evolved, you know? So, because the course used to go right up to the door of Tom Morris, you know, and that was, that was the court case in particular was, was that some of the people who built their houses there, you know, just overlooking the, the 18th fairway, wanted to do, have a road. And they were willing to pay for the road themselves. And the council said, absolutely, but you have to pay for it yourselves and upkeep it yourself. And then one of the town councillors thought this was sacrilege. How could you stick a road on the St Andrews, you know, ancient links? You know, it's just, it's not yours to give away. You know, so, uh, so, and he took them to court over this issue and it went all the way to the, uh, the House of Lords. And it was just an amazing case. And so Tom Morris is both, he, he gives statements before the trial, but he also is cross-examined in court. And Jimmy Anderson is. And so all my sort of heroes, this was them speaking about. So that's why we now know definitively that Tom started in 1839 with Alan Robertson, because he said, says so in being cross-examined in court. Um, so lots of these little things that until until now, we've been sort of guessing at, you know, thinking, well, he probably was an apprentice, so he must have been a teenager, you know, but now we definitely know he was 18. So lots of these little sort of nuggets are in there, you know, and it's just lovely to hear their own voices and their own sense of humour, because, you know, and there's, there's lots of laughter in, in the court, you know, some people are saying something. 
so yeah, so it, it is just a, a wonderful insight to the people themselves, and hopefully, I haven't got in the way too much. So essentially, it's a title dispute, rebuilding a rebuilding a new road, and and ultimately creating what we see as the backdrop of of the the first and the eighteenth. Yeah, absolutely. So the road down the side of the eighteenth today, that's what it was all over. Instead of the houses going or the, the course going right to their front doors, they wanted a, a road. So it, it just, um, it was just, it was, you know, I've studied a lot about the people and that's what I really find interesting. You know, I haven't studied the, the actual links, bizarrely, I haven't studied the links too much because I just find people like Playfair and George Bruce and Tom Morris and these people who completely revolutionized St. Andrews from where it was in the sort of 1820s as this disheveled, decrepit city, you know, yeah. um, to, do, to the, all the massive building work to completely change St. Andrews. You know, there's only a couple of thousand people lived in St. Andrews at one point, you know, so uh, uh, just to veer off for a second, it, it was a place of pilgrimage. The bones of St. Andrew were here. People would come here for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know. Um, and then John Knox gave a speech in the summer of 59 and uh, in, in the Holy Trinity Church. And then the locals incense went and, and tore down the cathedral and the two monasteries, Greyfriars and Blackfriars. But the whole economy of St. Andrews was that, because it had this large cathedral, it was the centre of sort of ecclesiastical Scotland. And it was this fantastic place of importance where all the wealth of all the churches came to St. Andrews. But overnight, that that's, was torn away. So from 1559 until early 1800s, St. Andrews was falling apart, you know, completely decaying, castle decaying, the cathedral became an open uh, mine where people were allowed to use the stones to build their houses. Allowed, you know, if you see the pier, the pier is built purely out of the stones from the old cathedral. You know. wow. so, so John Knox has a lot to has a lot to answer for, you know, the fortunes of St. Andrews, you know, it was the home of God, you know, and then eventually became the home of golf, you know, so, um, but, uh, um, but there was this period where the time was called decrepit. So, so when you see it now, and I've been studying all this, it makes me so grateful for, for Clifford and George Bruce and people like John Milne and architects and who basically built, rebuilt St. Andrews. So yeah, so I, 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 sorry, sorry to veer off, but I, I just, I just love the history of, of St Andrews um, and them and the witches and the witch trials and throwing, throwing, throwing somebody off the cliff to see if they'll, they'll float on water. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, and so yeah, so just the history of St Andrews, I, I just find utterly fascinating. And, Bizarre witch trials are just hilarious to read about people being afraid of a bee because they thought it was a witch that had transformed herself into a bee. (laughs) 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 Anyway, anyway, moving on slightly, you you mentioned earlier on that you're working on your next book, which is on the aforementioned Alan Robertson. I understand that you may have taken over the writing of that particular uh, manuscript and somebody else. Yeah. 
and I'm kind of wondering how, when you hope to release or complete the, the, the book on that one. Yeah, it was, it was um, uh, lovely guy, Bill Williams, came to St Andrews and met myself and a couple of other historians and said he wanted to do this book. And I, I, w- I was so supportive with him. You know, I asked him to stay back for a few minutes after the meeting and I said, you have a vision for this book. You know, you go for it, you do it, you know, and, and if I can help you in any way, just give me a shout, you know. And we kept in touch. And he, you know, he was lived in America, he was, but he was a, I think he was from Kent. And he was a lovely, lovely guy. And, and he he was going to come back to St. Andrews and then said he, his, he felt his health was taking a bit of a turn, but he would be back um, in touch to let me know when he's coming back to St. Andrews. And then it just popped up on Facebook, you know, that he had died. And uh, such a shock, you know, I'd been emailing him, you know, a week or two beforehand, you know. And he, he had pancreatic cancer and, you know, that's just one way traffic now. Father-in-law died of that as well, you know. At the minute, there's very little can be done. So I, I am, when his daughter came over to release some of his ashes, I met up with her at the Fairmont for for a coffee, and uh, and she had this green bag with her. I was like, just just read her own news. I still got it, and it's still papers on on Alan Robertson. And she said, "Could you could you finish this for my dad?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely." You know, and until that point, I, I hadn't been the biggest fan of Alan Robertson because I hadn't studied him. And, uh-huh. but now I am completely. You you believed what you read, and I, I guess in many ways, some of my my errors today have come from not reading your stuff, Roger. Obviously, <laughs> or not reading enough of your stuff, should we say? <laughs> you know, um, well, do you know what? You know, um, no historian is perfect, and you know, my hero is a guy called David F. Fleming, and his notes and he. he the detail that he has is brilliant. You know, it may be a hard read, but there'll be something in there that will help you with your research. You know? But even he wrote a, a, a book on, on the St. Andrews links. Um, and he wrote it, first of all, in the paper, that in the Citizen, they did little sections of it. And then they published it properly as a book. But the opening line of that book says, this has corrected all the inaccuracies that were printed in the in the papers, you know, so everybody, everybody will make a mistake. And, and honestly, I think there's nothing worse than a pompous historian because because everyone will make a mistake somewhere along the lines and have to do a mea culpa, you know. So yeah, so, um, so what were we talking about? Sorry, I got distracted. We were talking. We were talking about Alan and the book. So uh, you you were explaining to me the green bag. And okay, uh, so. you, his daughter had asked you to ask you to complete it, and you said you would. And you weren't a fan of of Alan, and I, I am now. I, I am, you know, because I, I have, uh, you know, when you do any history book, you really want to go back to the primary sources and read original material that hasn't been filtered, you know. Um, and he's coming across as a there's a kindness about him that I had never gotten before, which. It's really appeals. There is a popularity about him which I'd never gotten before. There was humour about him that I'd never gotten before. So he, he's coming across as instead of being this this sort of egotistical 
selfish guy, which is the impression that I've been given so far. He's far from it. And people are talking about his kindness, which is something I would never have put, you know, in my descriptions of Alan Robertson. So, so it's a joy to do and joy to research. And Bill had written about 40,000 words. So I'm sort of building on, on that and, and then adding in my own research. But the book itself will be co-authored by the firms. Sounds like a weighty tome. It, 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 it is, but we'll, we'll see. You know, I, I, I just, it's with every book you, you, you want to be evolving, you know, and um, we, we'll see. You know, I think um, I, I want to make it readable and relatable, you know. So when I'm talking about his relatives in the 1500s, and you think of the events in the 1500s, the, the burning of the witches and the, you know, all of that stuff and the martyrs, and all the different things that are going on historically at the time in St. Andrews, you know, so it sort of brings, what I'm trying to do is bring eras to life. So what they went through, so and then, you know, in the 1700s, they're going through the rabbit wars in St. Andrews, but they're going through the changing of the links from 22 to 18 holes. So it's not just a born lives dies, you know, including his relatives. It's about what's happening at that time as well. You know, It's the story of the time in addition to his story. Absolutely. But the story of the Robertsons is the story of St. Andrews, yeah. you know, because it, it's going from the 1500s right through to, that, that, that are actually recorded from the 1500s right through to, you know, to Alan. So, um, Just out of interest, uh, are there any Robertsons still involved in the game of golf in St. Andrews? No, uh, but there are relatives. Um, and Australia has a, a very strong connection to Alan's brother, David, you know, because Alan didn't have any children. You know, so he was married twice, but had no children. Um, there, are, there are relatives, Robertson relatives. So, uh, yeah, it just, um, but they are in Australia, you know, same with Jimmy Anderson's. You know, when I, when I was doing the headstone for Jimmy Anderson a few years back, you know, the only relatives I could find were, because you need their permission to do the headstone. And uh, we're over in New Zealand. Okay. You know, and then about a week before we went, uh, you know, the, the ceremony happened, the unveiling of the headstone and Sandy Lyler and stuff. His, uh, an even closer relative turned up in Anstrada, which was, which as you know, is miles away. Yeah, but luckily she was thought it was brilliant and um, and she was very excited about it. And this lovely photograph was all there on the day on Bill and Jimmy's headstone and Sandy Lyle's there. And, <clears throat> and it was brilliant. And for that, I I just wanted somebody, because Jimmy won the Open three times and he lived at, living at, I guess, Nine the Links. And uh, just overlooking the 18th green. But when he died, no headstone was added to his grave. And I, I just, when I was researching footsteps, it just kept coming back to me. And I just thought, oh, I have to do something about this. And I did some crowdfunding and, and with the help of the RNA and the St. Andrews Pilgrim Foundation, we got it over the line. And a local stonesmith uh, in St. Andrews did the headstone. But I, want, I, wanted, I wanted Jamie to have the burial lot he should have had. Because in, in the papers at the time, it said, this, this is a, 
you know, there was news about his death and about the funeral, but it said this is an intimation, not an invitation, i.e., this is just to let you know this funeral is happening. Um, but wow. but it's not an invitation. So so where Tom Morris, so you see the photograph of Tom Morris' funeral, it's the whole length of South Street, and you've got um, professionals there and gentlemen golfers there. You know, the Prime Minister, A.J. Balfour, raised funds for Tom, you know, and, and annuity, so that he would have some money after he retired. The Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy Anderson, who won three times, had nothing. And and I just find it really, really hard. And that's why I started the project. And, and luckily, we were able to get over the line. It took a bit of time because you have to go through Historic Scotland. You have to fill in forms. The headstone has to make sure it does, you know, it's conforming, etc. Um, but it was just a joy to have a champion there, um, a major, you know, an open champion there, the way Tom did. Tom had the open champions there. Now Jamie had the open champion there, just to say a few words by the graves. It was a lovely day. Sunshine was just beautiful. Well, I, I have to say I'm, I'm very impressed and, and thank you for all of Gals for doing that. It was something very worthwhile and something well-deserved in terms of Jamie's headstone. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of others there. I think Jack Burns and Tom Kidd, I think, currently don't have a headstone. And and, and that does, you know, that does, does not sit well with me. It sounds like it bothers you, which I think is, is very pointed. And, and I think it should bother the rest of golf also. Yeah, it's just no one left behind. It, it, it was an incredible thing to win an Open Championship. And uh, it's just... It takes a long time to get it through the system and the paperwork and the headstone and the approval and it just take a long time. But, but yeah, so hope maybe if it hasn't been done, we'll pick it up again maybe in a couple of years' time. I've just uh, you've been off on your plate with the sounds of it with the Alan Robertson book and obviously your uh, little small job with the British Golf Collector Society, editing through the green. What can you tell us about the society and the publication that you edit? The British Golf Collector Society is just this wonderful group of people who, who love their golf history, love collecting, love, you know, whether it's clubs or photographs or golf balls or paintings or, you know, hickory clubs. And the magazine we produce every quarter is called Through the Green. So in the editor of that, there's about 10 articles and the articles in each edition, they're all, it's like the Lancet for golf history, you know, they're really well researched, really well annotated, professionally, academically, uh, you know, set out. But just wonderful. And I, I, I love it with a passion. And I, I just, I love, you know, people who have uh, an interest in a certain subject and be able to get, you know, their research on the paper and then over the line, you know, it's just, just wonderful. So every edition I'm dealing with lots of different subjects, whether it's Bobby Jones, Tom Morris, Doug Rowland, who you just mentioned. So it's the latest research about these folk. And uh, yeah, just just um, just an absolute passion. And the articles are, are fantastic. And, and we have a, a set of seasoned writers and really well-known historians who, so for example, I would get an article in and then I would direct it to one of those. And then they would help them you know, make sure the structures there, et cetera. And, uh, and then get it back to me, you know. So it's a lovely, kind network of people, you know, who 
share their knowledge and, and share their new knowledge with fellow enthusiasts. And they, they do it for free and purely for their love of history, you know. And we've had so many amazing writers over the year, like John Hanna was a particular Irish historian. Bill Gibson, who's a member of the Curra as well, Colonel Bill Gibson. Uh-huh. It's about a lot about, you know, the Irish uh, Gulf history. So, yeah, just, just wonderful, absolutely wonderful and exciting to see what people come up with, you know. I've, I've just received a, an article about D.B. Robertson. Wow. You know, so um, some man has spent a long time researching D.B. Robertson, Alan's brother. So that will go in the September edition. The next edition is the, the um, which will come out in June, is the open edition, where every article is some research about something to do with the open. You know, Sidney Matthew, the specialist on Bobby Jones, is writing a piece about what actually happened to Bobby Jones when he famously has been reported, or will it, it has been reported that he walked off the course and, and he uh-huh. But, and ripped up a scorecard, yeah? Yeah, ripped up a scorecard, exactly. So Sid's, Sid's writing me uh, the actual truth of that event, what actually really happened, because he didn't walk off the course. He played his, played his round out and came back the next day and asked, could he play again? You know, but uh-huh. um, knowing, he said it was his greatest failure on, on, on the links at that moment when he tore up his card. So, so it'd be lovely to get the inside of that. And then there's there's lots more. Lots more little nuggets about past opens, you know. Sure. And if, if people are interested out there and so inclined, how would one go about joining the, the British Golf Collector Society? Yeah, you just just go to golfcollectors.co.uk, go to membership, and 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 they just just fill in a form and send it to the secretary. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's it's as simple as that, really. It doesn't sound like you bite too much as a collective. <laughs> Listen, just a couple of quick questions to finish with. In conclusion, I know that you were a graduate or are a graduate of the European Institute of Golf Course Architects course in Edinburgh. We always ask our guests to consider their bucket list entries in terms of golf courses that they either haven't played or perhaps would like to get back to. So I'm going to put you under pressure now, Roger, and ask you what's on your bucket list. So courses? Courses, yeah. Augusta. Uh-huh. Um, I want to go back to the European because I just thought that was one of the best courses I'd ever played. Um, Pat will be very pleased. <laughs> exactly. Um, can I have a As a complete aside, I actually had lunch with Nick Edmund yesterday from Global Golf for Cancer. Yeah. And he's actually down in the European today hanging his flag on the fourth hole in the European. Wow. Wow. And honestly, it was just, I played it with my, my brother, my brother's uh, law, sorry, brother-in-law Joe Darcy, and um, uh. Ray Darcy's brother for any of the Irish that are listening. And it was just, it was just the most amazing course. And I was like spellbound. And, and then Pat was there in the clubhouse afterwards as well, you know. So I was able to chat to him, you know, and go like, do you know what you've done? You know, it's just like, that was so beautiful. You know, so, uh, course. so, that, so yeah, definitely uh, the European. Uh, Royal County Dimer, which I played lots in my youth, but I haven't played for 
over 20 years. I just want to go back, you know. Do you ever get used to those blind shots, Roger? Do you know what? I think blind shots is the purest form of golf. I know it sounds weird. I don't disagree with you, but I just, I'm just asking for those that don't like blindness out there. Yeah, because when you're playing a blind golf shot, it's just you and the ball. And you just, there's no outside influence. You just have to sit and breathe and take your shot and use your imagination, you know, which is so crucial for good golfers like Seve and stuff. You know, imagination was everything. But with normal golf, it's like people are looking at their GPSs and just use your imagination, you know. I just, um, growing up, you know, in Lurgan, they, they had like 50-yard markers and 100-yard markers down the right-hand side of the fairway. But you, well, other than that, you just eyeball them. So I, I think blind holes, absolutely, like, you get to use your brain, which I think we're sort of taken out of the game a bit, you know. And also GPSs are, shouldn't, should be illegal from less than 60 yards. <laughs> I can't with a GPS, you know, thinking it's 43.5 yards. Dragged on shot, you know. Um, not, not, not literally. No, literally. Pick <laughs> up ice skating or something, you know, just do something else. But, you know, there's nothing worse. I, I played a round of golf with Joe Mace, uh, who, who you might know. But, um, uh-huh. and there was a group, and they had, it was like that scene from Caddyshack, you know, where. Rodney Dangerfield when he's on the fairway and he's playing the music, you know, and, you know, let's dance. And, um, <laughs> and, it like that. and it took three hours for nine holes, you know. And we, oh, dear. I'm just like, my God, you lose the will to live, you know. So I, I love it. In St. Andrews, we play ready golf and keep the game yeah. moving. And in the winter months, we get around in under three hours. Admittedly, it's like the end of the Benny Hill show. But it's fast and it keeps on moving. It just um... without the music, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and it just, it just, it keeps again moving and it's fast. And you get home in a reasonable hour. You know, you're able to get get work done and stuff like that, as well as had had your game of golf. You know, five hour yeah. games are just excruciating. Really painful absolutely so we've got uh we have augusta we have the european we have royal county down until i brought you off on a tangent so sorry about that number four would be oh um pebble beach you know okay. um, I, i'm tired of saying that creole golf courses like pebble beach um, because you know you play across the water at, at, in creole and creole i i love the balcomi course in creole i really i you know, I, I judge courses by how you feel after the golf. Uh-huh. At Creole, I, you come back in, have lunch, and you just want to go out and play again. You know, glorious course. But the way you play over the water is described, you know, described very like Pebble Beach. But I'd like to go and play at Pebble Beach rather than playing something that's a wee bit like it, you know. So, okay. so definitely Pebble Beach and I don't think where else. But actually, I. Yeah, Royal Liverpool. You know, I, I, I played it once with Hickory Clubs and um, and that was like one of the best games of golf I've ever played, but also one of the worst games of golf that I've ever played. Just and by that I mean because I was using Hickory Clubs that I'd just borrowed 
my relationship with the direction of the ball flight was 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 you know a distant cousin. You know, <laughs> it was, it was um, there was no what how I was swinging and how the ball was traveling were were two different channels. Uh-huh. But the course itself is historic, and the clubhouse is amazing. So I'd love to go back there with my own clubs and, and play that course. Okay. It, I, I, it has a special aura about it. You know. So I am going back in May for the AGM for the British Golf Collectors Society as a part of Liverpool. So okay, it just, fantastic. Um, fantastic. Yeah, so I hope I'll do better than the last night where my first shot went, and I'm exaggerating here to try to build it up, but it went at least three inches, um, but not much further. <laughs> I'm probably close oh, wow. to two because I, I basically took a swing and it, my, the it. club went right over the ball. <laughs> Okay. Okay. But to be fair, it moved in the right direction. So I kind of think maybe I, I gave my playing partner the line, nearly two hundred sixty yards away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully with your own bats next time, you'll 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 do yourself a little bit prouder. I'm sure you will. Listen, it would be remiss of me not to touch on book recommendations with you. Golf books, obviously. What two books would you recommend? if somebody was thinking about adding to their golf library? The first one uh, is the, uh, Tom Morris, The Colossus of Golf. And you can buy it in various formats. You can buy it sort of in an FI format quite cheaply, or you can buy like a limited edition for £100 or something from fine golf books. But it's just glorious. And Doc Malcolm, who sadly died around the time when I was researching footsteps or even before that, sorry. But when I was researching and I really wanted to speak to him and, and I, I just, I'd heard he was ill and I didn't want to go and bother him and stuff. But, but that book, that, the way he tells history is just fantastic because it's not boring. It's not, he makes it human, you know, which is, which is what I'm trying to do with Alan's book. Is, is that if I get too bogged down in detail, then I'm, I'm going to lose the storyline. Uh-huh. So, um, so yeah, so absolutely read that. It, it is you could open it up anywhere and take it off, and you'd have a good read. You know, it's not something you have to read from start to finish, or from you know from beginning to end. You, you could pick it up anywhere and read that, and it is just phenomenal. Tom Morris brought to life all the other heroes as well. There's a great chapter in Alan Robertson. The second choice, there's there's so many going through my head right now. Stephen Proctor. You, you, you can pick three if you want. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hold you to a, a, a hard two. If you've got two or three more, happy days far away. So so Stephen Proctor's book on Tommy Morris is brilliant. Um, I'm so looking forward to his, his book that's coming out now, his new Sounds one. Sounds great, uh, Sounds really good. He is a, just a phenomenal writer. You know, when... People talk about Bernard Darwin being one of the best writers. Well, I, I think Stephen Proctor is that for our generation. It's the old newspaper writer, you know. He, he really brings the story to life. Yeah, honestly, he really does. But not in a, a glib way, not in a sensationalist way. just tells the heart of the story, which I, I absolutely love. So definitely recommend that. There, there's a book called... Golf Scotland's Game by David Hamilton. Now, David Hamilton is, lives here in St Andrews, and he's the godfather to so many writers, including myself. 
he was the one that helped me with the footsteps and helped me get over the line. But he's done that with umpteen riders, you know. So he's he is the our sort of godfather. But his book, Golf Scotland's Game, basically sets out the case why golf originated in Scotland. It's not a Dutch import, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he's very vociferous about this, that but it is definitely Scotland's game. So so those three books I definitely recommend. There's tons of books from the eighteen hundreds that I'd recommend as well. Andrew Kirkcaldy's, try to get your hands on that. That is just brilliant. It, it's it's like um, you know, because he was a well known player in you know in the eighteen hundreds and nineteen hundreds. And he, he but he brings all their stories to life, you know, about Jamie Anderson and those early golfers and talking about the champions that going to an event on the back of a cart. You know, it's, it's sort of hard to get your head around that this open champion would be sitting on the back of a cart as they're driving to Carnoustie or somewhere, you know. <laughs> it's just, uh, so, so Andrew Kirkcaldy's 50 years, I think it's called the Gears. That's definitely, definitely worth a read. And then finally, and, and obviously, I could go on all day, Balfour's book as well on St Andrew's links gives detail on the evolution of the links. Just, just to show the how it evolves and stuff. And he talks about a massive bunker being beside the steps, uh, where the steps are of the RNA. And I haven't read that anywhere. Uh-huh. Um, you know, on the 18th green, I haven't read that anywhere apart from in this one book by Balfour. So yeah, so yeah, I, these sort of history books are, are, are my world. So I, I could go on for no, I get that. Long. I get that. Listen, before we let you go, you might just tell listeners how they might go about buying any or all of your books, and how they might find you online or on the social channels. Uh, find golf books. Stock all my books. You know, I used to do look after all the sort of shipping them and stuff like that, but I kind of had reached the point where I just want to write really. So Peter Grunwell, he's a lovely guy. Lives in town now stocks all the books so it's uh, fine golf books is the, the place to find it if anybody wants to get in touch i, I do have a website so the roger mcstrava.com and you know and feel free to if there's any follow-up questions to get in touch and i'm quite happy to, to field questions roger many thanks for your time it's been an absolute pleasure let's not leave it 14 years until our next conversation continued success in the writing and the editing front and many thanks once again for your time no joy absolute joy thank you very much Many thanks to Roger once again for his time. Just a quick reminder, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf and on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Until the next time, happy golfing.